0: Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Toleric Community Church. This is the word of the Lord from 1 Timothy 4, 1-7. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars, whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. This is the word of the Lord. Lord be with you, Tulare Community Church. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at TCC. A happy Mother's Day to all of the incredible moms on this beautiful day. What a gift you are, not only to our church community, but also to our community at large. We would be a mess without you. And not only that but we literally wouldn't be here at all. This morning, we are continuing in our sermon series that is working through the book of 1 Timothy, an epistle written by Paul to his colleague in ministry, Timothy, who is serving the church in the city of Ephesus. We're looking at the first half of chapter 4, and we'll find that our time will be best summed up like this. If the main thing isn't the main thing, nothing else matters. That truth will guide our time this morning. If the main thing isn't the main thing, then nothing else matters. Recently, I've been slowly moving my way through a book called Deep Work. It's written by a computer science professor on the East Coast, and the core argument of the book is that our brains are really only able to focus on one thing at a time. When people claim that they can multitask, what their brain is actually doing is moving its focus from one thing to the next, but we're never actually able to spread out our focus on more than one thing at a time, unless you're a mother, of course. So when you're filling out paychecks at the end of the month and you have the Dodgers game playing in the background, you can actually only focus on either filling out those paychecks or watching the Dodgers lose to the Giants. This is how our brains work. That's how the synapses and neurons and a whole bunch of other stuff that you don't learn about in seminary work. Now, if that's how our brains actually function, when we look around, we realize pretty quick that we're not doing ourselves any favors. For example, when I was serving a church plant in San Diego a couple years ago, I would take, I would take, I would bike over to a bookstore on my off day and peruse the shelves. As I did, I was always amused by the self-help section. This is a relatively new genre of books, and they fascinated me on two levels. The first is that they pretty much all claim to have found the answer to living a life of happiness and fulfillment. You think, wow, somebody finally figured it all out, huh? And then two weeks later, I'd walk back in there and see a whole set of brand new books that claimed that they had the secret to happiness and fulfillment contained within their pages. Pretty funny. The second observation was the more overwhelming. Live your perfect life in 12 easy steps. Feel 20 years younger with these seven daily practices. Become the millionaire next door with these nine fail-proof financial principles. If our brain can only focus on one thing at a time, no wonder these books recycle themselves so quickly. But also, amidst the onslaught of the advice, it is so easy to lose the forest through the trees, to come up for air after doing a hundred things and ask, Why was I doing that again? Do you ever feel this way? Claire and I live right by a softball field complex there on Laspina, and it's wonderful to hear cheers and commotion on a Saturday morning after a year of silence, but as youth sports are ramping back up, are you finding yourself asking on your way to the second day of a tournament in Bakersfield, why is my daughter on two travel teams again? Why did I agree to take on even more sales territory when I had when what I had was plenty and I see my family even less now again Why do I feel such a compulsive need to exercise so much even though the aches and pains and injuries are probably my body's way of telling me to stop again Why did I say yes to adding another volunteer opportunity, another board position, when I know I'm close to snapping again? My brain can only handle one thing at a time. Will someone please remind me what that one thing is supposed to be? Our passage from 1 Timothy is getting at a similar question. We only have seven verses, so let's work through them to see what God's word might have to say about this question. Paul starts out our passage with a bang. He says in verse 1, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Paul does not say how or through whom the Spirit speaks, but only that the Spirit doesn't mince words. When he says later times, he's probably referring to any time after Jesus's resurrection or maybe any time after Pentecost. So later times probably corresponds to that very moment. It was inevitable that this would happen and here we are, he's saying. And he sums this up in 2 Timothy four three when he writes, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine." Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And who are these teachers? They are demons, Paul says. Hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. How? They are false, te- they are false teachers who have infiltrated the church teaching made-up doctrine, but they don't feel bad about that one bit. Their sense of right and wrong has been cauterized. Okay, well, what have they been teaching? Verse 3 tells us, They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. No matrimony, no shrimp. Now, the Levitical law, the law of Israel, had all kinds of rules about abstaining from certain kinds of foods. Leviticus chapter 11 starts like this, says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, say to the Israelites of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially, ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. goes on like this for a while, talking about sea creatures, birds, insects, so on and so forth. So food laws were not foreign to the earliest Christians. But in the book of Acts, the apostle Peter receives a vision that goes like this. This is Acts 10, verses 9 to 16. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Not only that, but Jesus sums up the law in the great commandment when he says that all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. So are food and something like marriage bad? No. Our passage tells us that they were created to be received with thanksgiving. They are a gift from God. Why in the world would you abstain from them? Paul goes on to say in verse 4, For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Paul is so blunt as he's talking about teachers who have been spreading this nonsense about abstaining from the good things God has created. Because these trivial concerns get at a deeper, more significant reality. He's saying if this is taking up even an iota of your attention, then you're missing the whole point. John Calvin puts it this way. As soon as the worship of God is infected by such corruptions, the controversy is not about flesh or fish or about a black or ashy color or about Friday or Wednesday, but about the mad superstitions of men who wish to appease God by such trifles and by contriving a carnal worship of him, contrive for themselves an idol instead of God. Essentially, attention to this stuff is nothing more than superstition, creating an idol to worship instead of God. Now, this sort of issue is not isolated to the Christians in the churches of Ephesus in this letter. Paul writes passionately about a growing curiosity and circumcision in the book of Galatians. He writes against that. In church history, we see all kinds of movements that tried to multitask when we know that any of us are only capable of focusing on one thing at a time. Fear of the sins of the world led to monasticism, a complete retreat from the world, summarized by St. Anthony when he wrote, Monks who leave their cells or seek the company of others lose their place, like a fish out of water loses its life. Yikes. The Donatists so overemphasized purity and holiness that they became self-righteous, critical, and legalistic. During the Middle Ages, an enormous amount of importance was placed on the role of the Pope. This ended up giving religious leaders position of not only religious power, but also financial and political power as well. This eventually led to abuses by the church in the form of something called indulgences, which were essentially get-out-of-jail-free cards if you were willing to pay the right price. You could free a family member or a friend from hell No joke. All these attempts at futile multitasking would lead to the Protestant Reformation, which essentially called the church to the mat for having lost sight of the one main thing. Only one thing matters, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, who came to earth 2,000 years ago because humanity was way more concerned with trying to be God than simply being with God. The Jesus Christ, who came to earth because humanity had chosen to bring sin into the world. The Jesus Christ, who came into the world because we needed a savior And we couldn't save ourselves. The Jesus Christ who came into the world and became the Savior that we so desperately needed, taking our place, taking the punishment that we deserved. The Jesus Christ who came into the world and showed us how deeply God God loves us by dying for us. And after he did, he was resurrected. And when we believe in his resurrection, we are forgiven the sins we've committed and we're promised eternal life. That's the main thing, the Protestant Reformation said. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Now the distractions at play in our passage from 1 Timothy 4 persist today. There are all kinds of pressures at work trying to distract the church from the main thing. The prosperity gospel, cultural and political pressures from the left and from the right, liberal theology, secularism, all missing the main thing. Jesus died for the sins of the world, including yours. His grace is sufficient for you. Nothing else matters. The main thing isn't the main thing. Nothing else matters. As we wrap up here today, I'm reminded of a moment at the end of the final book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Frodo Baggins and his companions have been tasked with destroying an evil magical ring by throwing it into a volcano on the other side of the world. Only Frodo can carry the ring because anyone else will be controlled by its power. After Frodo and his companions have fought orcs and monsters all across Middle-earth, Frodo and his closest friend Sam are finally climbing up the side of this volcano to destroy the ring. Frodo has become too weak and he can no longer carry on. He falls, unable to walk. Sam, knowing the ring, must be destroyed... And that only Frodo can destroy it makes everyone watching the movie or reading the book pretend their eyes are watering because of allergies. And he cries out, come, Mr. Frodo. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. He picks up Frodo and carries him the whole rest of the way so Frodo can throw the ring into the volcano. The main thing was that the ring needed to be destroyed and everything else fell into place. TCC, if your brain can only focus on one thing at a time, then focus on the one who went to the cross for you. The one who will carry you when you're too weak to carry on. And let everything else fall into place. Let the main thing be the main thing. Because if it's not, nothing else matters.